0: Hey, good morning, everyone. Everybody doing okay this morning? Join winter? All right, just hang out. We're two-thirds away through winter, by the way. Just know that. I'm like, really? Because we have winter through June in upstate New York, so I don't know who comes up with those figures. It's good to see everybody this morning. We're in a series called True, and we're looking at, at whether or not certain things are true. And we, last week we, we looked at the question is, is it true that everyone... Goes to heaven. If you you missed it, you can go online or go on our website, and you can uh, listen to that message. And and we're we're. I, I want us to just kind of dive into God's word and and discuss things that uh, maybe maybe people that you've talked to or maybe people in your life. They're like, you know, is is that is that really true? And and I have to admit, uh, I am one of those people that uh, love to watch those shows. ...where they try to uh, prove something. Like, um, is Bigfoot real? Can I just be honest with you? My dad's the same way, too. I drive my wife crazy with this. She goes, really? You're watching another Bigfoot show? She goes... They're not real. They find, are you kidding me? With everything we have, we can't... I go, it could be, though. He could be roaming around. He could be living in our backyard. We don't know, right? And so I'm kind of a sucker for those uh, shows, and they're, you know, they're trying to find the evidence, and whether or not this is true or not, and they bring in these so-called experts and to try to find these things out. If anything, it makes for entertaining uh, TV. So we're looking into claims that people will make And and see what the Bible has to say about whether or not it's true. And so we want to make sure that we understand, because we believe that the Word of God is truth. And we want to make sure to understand correctly, what what are the truths behind this? And so last week we looked at whether or not everyone goes to heaven. This week I want to answer the question, uh, is hell and Satan real? Is is that real or is that just a fantasy? Uh, is there a person named Satan and is there a hell? And just the short answer to that is yes. So let's just all go home now. No, I'm just, I want to dig into this. I really want to dig into this because this, if we're honest with ourselves, is a hard topic. And it's not easy to talk about it. I just know that, that when you read through the word of God, there are, are things that make us feel comfortable. And we talk about the love of God and we talk about heaven. And all those are wonderful topics. But then there are topics that make us feel uncomfortable. And, and the topic of hell should make every single one of us feel uncomfortable. It, it should cause us to stop and reflect and to realize that there is a reality of, of hell that the Bible speaks about. And, and I would love not to have to talk about those things, but how many know that if it's in the Bible, we, we, we should talk about it? And we need to understand what it means. Not talking about it doesn't mean that it's not there. Right? So we have to talk about these things, and that's, I, I want to talk about whether or not these things are true. And the Bible does address the person of Satan as well as hell. And and what does the Bible have to say about this? So I want to first address um, this person of of Satan. Is is this a person that wears a red cape and has a pitchfork? Okay, that's the way many times he's characterized. Uh, The answer is no. Okay, let's let's understand what the word of God has to, to say about this. And I want you to understand that we live... In a spiritual world. There are things. The material world. There are things that we absolutely see all around us. But how many of us know that we also live in a spiritual world? There are things that we don't see. But that are going on around us. And the Apostle Paul talks about these things. Especially when he writes to the church in Ephesus. And he, he, he just exhorts the church to make sure that we understand that we live in a spiritual world and that we know how to combat this spiritual world. I'm going to read for you Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. And listen to what Paul says here. Because he's, he's given us the reality that what we see in front of us is not all that there is. And he says, finally, be strong in who? The Lord. Not in yourself, but be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And then he tells them to put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the devil's schemes. And we're going to dive into what that word schemes mean because that's all about this unseen world that we don't see and how does the enemy work through these particular schemes. And this is what Paul says. Here's the reality. For our struggle is not against what? Flesh and blood, things that we see, but against rulers, against authorities against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So let me let me pause right there. Should that cause us to run in fear? Should that cause you, oh my oh my goodness pastor just like I could have slept in this morning. You know, I I mean, this is kind of scary stuff. I mean, should should I be worried? Should I be Frantic about this, that we live in this spiritual world and we live in this dark world. I want you to say absolutely not for those that are in Christ. Because remember what Paul says, be strong in the Lord's power. He's, he's, he's the one who's defending us. And so what does he tell us to do? There's, there's something that we should do. He says, therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when that day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. So we, we, we don't see everything that is around us because, what Paul says, we live in this unseen world also. Do you realize, you know, we, we talk a lot about angels, do you realize that angels are mentioned some 300 times in the Bible? Roughly 90% of the books of the Bible, the number of angels are numerous, thousands upon thousands. And so we have to understand that there's this unseen world, that there are angels around us, and uh, when we talk about the topic of Satan, we have to understand that Satan is a created being. There's not this Satan is equal with God. There's not this you know, devil on one shoulder and you got an angel on the other and, and he has equal power. We have to understand that God is sovereign. He is all-powerful. Satan is under the auspices of God. God is completely in control. But what we see through scriptures, is that Satan was a created being, an actual angel that had fallen because he wanted—he he was enamored with his own pride and wanted to be like God. And we have scriptures that point out the characteristics of Satan and why he fell from heaven. The prophet Ezekiel and Isaiah give us some really interesting insights to the plight of Satan. So let, let's first talk about um, The person of Satan and what the word of God has to say about that. And then we'll talk uh, more about the the place of hell. And so let's look at Ezekiel 28 verses 14 and 17. And listen to how the prophet Ezekiel in the Old Testament describes Satan. He says, you were anointed guardian cherub, which means he's an angel. Because I placed you and you were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire. You walked. Your heart was what? It was proud. It was prideful because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. And what does it say here? I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes upon you. So we see this casting out of of heaven. We see this casting out of Satan because of his own pride. And then Isaiah describes this a little bit further for us in Isaiah 14. Verses 12 through 15. It says, Oh, how you have fallen from heaven. And then he gives him this description of morning star. Son of, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to earth. You who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. Wanting to be like God. Wanting to be all powerful. And that's why he was cast out. I will sit enthroned on the mount of the assembly. On the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon, I will ascend above the tops of the clouds and I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Now, the word morning star can also be translated Lucifer. And the name morning star is used in ancient languages to actually describe angels. And so what angels are is, and, and what Satan is, is angels are heavenly beings that were created by God to serve him. So angels are actually created beings that were created by God to serve him. That was, that, that was Satan's role. He was to serve God, but because of his pr- pride, he wanted to be like God. He wanted to ascend to where God was. And so God casted him out. So here's the thing. When we die, we don't become angels, okay? So some of us need to be careful not to get our theology from Bugs Bunny cartoons, okay? How many of you like Bugs Bunny, right? Every time he died, he ended up getting a harp and a halo and sitting on a cloud. And that's not what happens, okay? So we don't become angels, okay? There's nowhere in the Bible that that is described that we become angels. Angels are heavenly beings. We are different from that. And so uh, let's not take our theology from, from Bugs Bunny. So we don't become angels when we die. Uh, we don't go to heaven and become angels. It's simply bad teachings. We don't sit on a cloud and play the harp all day long. How many would you agree with me, if that's what we did, it would be pretty boring. I, I think heaven's a lot more exciting um, than that. So what can we, what can we deduce from these uh, passages? Well, what we can deduce from, uh, from Isaiah and Ezekiel is that Satan is a fallen angel. And this would help us to understand the words of Jesus when he said a third of the angels fell in rebellion because because of him, and they became demons. And so what what we see here is what, what Paul is describing for us is this evil spiritual world where we see Satan, he has fallen, and then a third of these angels had fallen with him that are demons now. And this is what's creating this spiritual war around us. So let, let's, let's, let's talk about uh, what we actually know about Satan. What is his characteristics? What does the word of God say about him and his characteristics? So what do we know about Satan? Well, here's a couple of things that we know. We know that he's a tempter. Uh, Matthew 4, 3 says the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And we know that during Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, Satan came to him and misrepresented the word of God and tempted, uh, and tempted Jesus in the wilderness. And so we see him as a tempter, trying to thwart the work of God in our heart, trying to thwart uh, God's word, uh, and, and, and make us fall prey to his schemes. Uh, we understand that he's the prince of of, of demons. Uh, Matthew twelve twenty four. 24, uh, you know, the Pharisees um, were seeing Jesus he- healing people, and they didn't want to believe that Jesus was the Son of God, that he was God, that he could heal. And the Pharisees knew better uh, to know that... Um, God would not heal people. This is a good thing uh, that's happening if it were done uh, by the enemy. And so what does is, what is the um, word of God say here in Matthew 12, 24? It says, but when the Pharisees heard this and they heard of Jesus healing people, they said, it's only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. So they're basically saying, well, the only we're not going to say that Jesus is the son of God. So the only thing we can say is that uh, he's Satan, which is absolutely Ridiculous. And what's interesting about this word for Satan or the, or the prince of the demons, Beelzebub, uh, it, it, this word Beelzebub, sometimes Beelzebul, it, it depends how it's translated, actually was the god of the Philistines. It was a pagan god, the god of the Canaanites. And it really means god of filth, uh, uh, god or lord of the dung, or lord of the flies. And, and so that's what this word Beelzebub means. Means. And this is what the Pharisees called Jesus. And so they were saying that Satan, or Beelzebub is the prince of demons. So that's how the Bible also describes him. He also perverts the word of God. And we see this, once again, in Jesus' temptation, where he took the word of God, he manipulated it to try to get Jesus to become disobedient to the will of the Father. And it says, when the devil had finished... All his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. And here's the thing I want you to see about that verse. It's interesting that Luke puts in there that he left him for an opportune time. And so what it means there is that Satan's temptations were not a one-time thing. And what I want you to realize is that we are in a battle And we should never get comfortable. That doesn't mean I have to fear the enemy. I have to fear God and know that ultimately God is in control. And when I put my hope and I put my trust in God, he's the one that fights my battles. Amen? So I don't have to fear that. But what I do have to understand is that there's this temptation, that that there's this um, constant need for me to follow my desires and to follow my flesh. And Satan uses that to thwart God's work in my heart, and my mind. And so we have to realize that our fight is not this thing that we see in front of us. It was, it was interesting yesterday at our, our men's group, our SolCon group, um, we talked about the very thing. We talked about the very thing of, of what it means uh, to be in a, a, a spiritual war, to, to, to fight on our knees. And the way we fight this spiritual battle is through prayer. And I liked what the speaker said yesterday. The speaker said, you know what? There are times where we just need to call out to Jesus. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to do it. But we just call out the name of Jesus. He's the one that fights our battles. If we directly try to fight Satan, guess what? We're going to lose every single time. But when we call upon the Lord, he's the one that delivers us. It's, It's by our own desires and by our own fleshy desires that we're led astray and led away away from the Lord. But the wonderful thing about having a relationship with Jesus is that when we call on his name, he's there to deliver us. Amen. And so realize that that yes, yeah, Satan did leave Jesus at this at this particular time, but he came back again and again and again to try to thwart the work of God. And so what Jesus says about about Satan is that he is a slanderer. He's a, he's a liar. So he's a liar, he's called the father of all lies, and basically he comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And so listen, I want to tell you, it it doesn't matter if people get down on their knees and worship Satan. You know what, he could care less about that. As long as your mind isn't on God, as long as we believe the lies of the world, then guess what, he's doing his work. And so that's why we have to be sensitive. That's why we have to be alert to what the enemy is doing all the time. Because he lies to us. He comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And how many of you, you've looked back at your past and you believe some lies. And you allowed yourself to get addicted to this thing or that thing. And you saw how it destroyed your life. But then you came to Christ. And Christ delivered you and set you free, and how different your life is now in Jesus Christ. Because what the enemy destroyed and tried to take away, Jesus gives back to us in fullness. Amen? That's what it, that's what it means to be in Christ Jesus, that he comes to literally set us free. And so when we trust that truth, it's that truth of Christ that sets us free. And we can look back at our lives and we can see, man, that was a a bad choice. That was something I should have never ran after or done. And I can see the way that it ruined and train wrecked my life for a while. And Jesus Christ has come to destroy the works of the enemy. And I love hearing lives that have been changed through Christ Jesus. I love hearing lives that have been transformed. That doesn't mean we still don't struggle. That doesn't mean we still don't battle. But now we have a relationship with Christ Jesus if you've put your hope in him to help you through those battles. So just remember that Satan is going to try to lie to you. He's going to try to make you believe things that aren't necessarily true. He's going to try to make you justify things in your life that aren't necessarily true. And and here's, here's a great litmus test for you. If if I'm believing something and I begin to justify, like, well, it's not that bad. Well, blah, 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 blah. You're justifying it. And Satan can easily use that to manipulate you from understanding and submitting and obeying the will of God. So just remember that he's a liar and that he comes to kill, steal, and destroy. He wants to break up your relationships. So let's not believe the lie. Let's keep our hearts sensitive to Christ and what his will is for us. And so we know that he's this prince of the world, Jesus says in John twelve thirty one. And so these are just a few verses that we see in the Bible that, that describe him. We know Satan is under the auspices of God, but that he is the prince of this world and that he's out and he wants to destroy. He wants people to believe a lie and his, his greatest job is to keep us from knowing who Jesus truly is. And so whether or not it's to distract us with the things in this world, to distract us with just looking after myself, um, that he's doing his job. Whether or not it's within the church to try to cause factions and divisions and gossip within the church, we cannot give the enemy a foothold in our lives, in our relationship, in our church, that's why prayer is so vital, because that keeps us sensitive to God's will. And that keeps us fighting the right way, so that Christ is glorified in our midst. Amen? Aren't you glad you came to church today? This is so uplifting. It gets better. Just hold on a minute. So, so let's look at how he works. So we understand his character, but then how does he work? Because this is... We, how, Listen, if you're going into battle and you're in the military, you want to understand your enemy. If any of you were in the military, you study that, you understand what, what, what their plans are so that, that you can have a good battle plan. If you don't go in with a good battle plan, guess what? You're going to lose the battle. And I, let me just get a little hyper for just a minute because my orange juice was expired this morning, so I don't know what I'm going to say today. But let me, let me just say this. I think for many Christians, none, a lot of us, I shouldn't say none of us, but a lot of us don't have a battle plan. We don't, we don't really understand the enemy and the way he fights. And so we end up going into battle without the full armor of God. And then we understand why we are so easily defeated by things because we're not correctly fighting the right way. We don't have a battle plan. And if you don't have a battle plan and you're going to fight your enemy and you're going to war, if you don't have a battle plan, you're going to lose that war. I mean, it's, I, I love, once again, I geek out over war movies and strategies. and Just the whole Normandy invasion just blows my mind how they accomplished that on D-Day. It, just, it, it was such a strategic planning between multiple countries on how they were going to invade Normandy and take over uh, occupied Germany and France. It's just, it's just amazing how they did that, but they had a plan. They had a plan. And so the way the, the enemy works, the, the devil works through schemes. This is what the Apostle Paul says. The devil works through schemes. So let's, let's look at what this word means that Paul uses. It's actually the word methodeia. It's the Greek word methodia, and it's, it's where we get the word method or strategies. It literally means craftiness or wilds. It's actually following a, or pursuing an orderly and technical procedure. The enemy knows what he's doing. It's, nothing is haphazard. So what Paul is saying is, he works through, screen, uh, through, uh, uh, through schemes, and, and there, there is a method behind what he does. So it's following or pursuing an orderly or technical, uh, technical procedure. For those of you who love math, for those of you who geek out over math, it would be a mathematical procedure. It's perfectly calculated. So he knows, he knows what he's doing. So it's, it's methodically orchestrating events to tempt us, to deceive us, uh, trying to allow us to believe half-truths. Now, no matter what Flip Wilson tells you, how many of you are old like me and you remember Flip Wilson? Just make me feel good, old people. Okay, Flip Wilson used to say this. How many remember what he used to say? The devil made me do it, right? No! Flip was wrong. His theology was from Bugs Bunny. Okay, so Flip was wrong. The devil can't make you do anything. But he can tempt you. And that's what he does. Methodically orchestrating events to tempt us, to deceive us, trying to allow us to believe half-truths. And so we can never underestimate the plans of the enemy. And, and this is what Peter says. I love this verse. The way we do this, so like, well, you know, Pastor, how, how, how do I protect myself? I mean, how do I protect myself from these schemes, uh, from, from temptation? The, the best way you can do this, First Peter 5.8 says this, Peter says, be sober-minded and be watchful. And that word sober-minded means don't be inebriated. Don't be drunk. Don't don't be out of your mind because once you do that, you open yourself up to the schemes and the temptations and to give in to those temptations. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. And what does he say there? Your adversary, the one that's against you, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to whom he may Devour. That that word means completely destroy. That's what he wants to do. So let's call it for what it is. So the way we're sober-minded is this. Know your weaknesses. The the best way that you can, can defend yourself from the temptations of the enemy is to know your weaknesses. Listen, the best thing you can ever do for me as your pastor is to pray for me. Is to pray for me. Because I'm just like all of you. And, and, and don't you believe that the enemy wants to take me down? Absolutely. He absolutely wants to do that. And that's why I absolutely need your prayers. I, I need to, When I pray, I, I ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, show me the areas of my life that are my blind spots. That, that I might not see. Those areas of hidden pride. That I don't see. Reveal those to me. Listen, when you bow before the Lord and you open your heart up to God and you say, God, show me the areas of my life that are weak. I, I heard this quote the other day and it, it just, you know, sometimes they just slap you in the face. You're like, man, that is so good. And they said, if you were able just to get a Google report of all the things we looked at, and all the things we thought about—what would be the majority of the things that we thought about? What were the things that we spent our time thinking about the most? That will reveal your heart. That will reveal what's going on. Because guess what? That report's not going to lie. Now we can try to we can we can try to dial it up or, or make it a little bit different. Say, well, it's not that bad. But listen, look at your life and say, what are the things that I'm spending most of my time looking at? What are the things that I'm thinking about? What what are those things? And I'm not saying all those things are necessarily bad things, but where am I spending my time? And, And those things won't lie to you. And it will show you where your heart is. And so that's okay because it will show us where our weaknesses are, that we say, God, you need to protect me here. This is a part of my life um, that I know I'm vulnerable in and I need your help and I need your strength. And the minute we confess something or confess our weakness to the Lord, that grip or that power takes its control off our lives. The moment we try to justify it and deny it is the moment that thing gains more control in our life. The more we confess that to the Lord and confess our weaknesses, the less that thing has its power over our life. Are you, are you tracking with me here? See, that's what the enemy uses. He wants to, he's going to go, he's not going to tempt you in your strengths. He knows better than that. But where the temptation is going to come, it's going to come in our weaknesses. The places where we're most vulnerable in. And that's why the word of God says to take every thought captive. Because it starts here. Once that gets into our mind and we begin to think about it and we begin to mull over it, we've got to be careful. Because the moment we begin to do that, we can sidetrack our lives and start to think about negative things and things that, you know, God, how are you going to do this without trusting the Lord by saying, God, I just give this to you and I need your help. I think the best prayer you can pray is just, God, I need your help. I need your help in this area of my life. And what you do is what James says is resist, resist the devil and he will flee from you. The way you resist the devil is by turning to Christ and giving him your weaknesses and confessing those weaknesses to him. The devil have no place in your life. He will flee. But we have to be ready and we have to be prepared and we need to know that he is on the prowl. C.S. Lewis makes this great point. He says, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The, the gentle slopes, the soft underfoot, without milestone, without signposts. It's just, it's just doing my own thing and really not thinking about it. That's a, a very, very good statement there. So let's be on our guard. And knowing that I don't have to, it's not me rebuking Satan and telling him to flee. It's me going to Christ. He's the one that fights our battles. It's understanding what my weaknesses are so that the enemy cannot use them against me. My strength is in the Lord. He is my defender. I love that song. right? There is no temptation that is so great they can overcome you or overwhelm you. That God has not made an escape for us through Christ Jesus. Our strength is in the Lord. He's our defender. And so go to him. All right. So let's, let's, let's get more depressed here and talk about hell. So let's, let's see what the word of God has to say about this. I, I love, once again, let me quote C.S. Lewis here. And, and this is the way I feel about it. Because this is such a tough topic. And I'm not going to say it's not easy. But he said. There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this. If it lay in my power. But it has full support of scripture. And specifically of our Lord. own His own words. It has always been and held by Christendom. And it always has the support of reason. So. Before we actually talk about this place of hell, and it's not fun to talk about it, let me let me explain God's justice. Because this is this is the I think when you talk to a friend and, and, and their question's gonna be this, if God is such a loving God, why would he send anyone to hell? How many have ever heard that? You've been talking to somebody, they say, we we hear it. so you're like, Well, Pastor, how would I answer that? If if because that, that's a good one. I mean they're like if God's so loving, you know, why why would he send anyone to hell well let me let me first say this god doesn't send anyone to hell okay so let's explain what that means and then we're going to dig into this okay so is everybody with me so let's talk about this first of all i I want us to talk about god's justice first because we have to understand god's character and his justice and why we deserve what we deserve first of all god is just in his dealings with us he is perfectly just In his dealings with, with us. So let's understand what this means. What does this mean? This means this. God is fair in all his dealings. And God makes no mistakes. So we have to. We love to talk about God's love. But we also have to understand about God's justice. And what we know about God and his character. Is that God is a righteous judge. And his judgments are perfect. And without mistakes. So this attribute actually flows out from his holiness. If God is going to be a loving God, then God also has to be a just God to deal with us correctly. If God were not fair in his judgments, he would not be acting in accordance with his holiness. So in order for God to be a fair and righteous judge, he must deal with our sin. And we all know that we're born with sin. The the word of God says we've all fallen short of God's perfection or his righteousness. No matter how good I try to, to be or become, we will never match God's perfection. Every single one of us has fallen flat on our face before the Lord. There is none that is righteous, not one. Now, can people do good things? Absolutely. But compare those good things to God, and we fall short every single time. Now, I'm not a bad swimmer. I was an okay swimmer, right? But put me next to Michael Phelps. You can laugh. Put me next to Michael Phelps, and he's going to run me out of the pool. So it doesn't matter whether or not I'm a good swimmer compared to Michael Phelps. I don't even match up. And so for us, we may think we're good, but matched up to a perfect holy God, we fall short every single time. So we have to understand that our sin was a crime against God and that the penalty is death and separation from God. And so in order for God to be a fair, righteous judge, he must judge our sin. So let me put it this way. If if someone breaks the law or is a murderer, uh and murder someone else, a fair judge will not let them go. They must pay for their guilt. There has to be accountability for uh, the crime that they did. We have to be accountable for our life and our sin. So God sends no one to hell. We, by our own guilt and refusal to come to God, make that choice for ourselves. So unless we understand the justice of God, um, we can't really understand the fairness of God either. So God sends no one to hell, but we by our own guilt and refusal to to come to God make that choice for ourselves. There's this interesting parable that Jesus speaks, uh, and Matthew records it for us, and and Jesus talks about uh, what hell was prepared for. And it's a parable of God separating the sheep from the goats. Uh, Those that obeyed God and those that didn't. And listen to Jesus' word. He says, Then he'll say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal fire, prepared. Prepared for who? The devil and his angels. See, hell was prepared for the devil and his angels so that God's righteousness, so that God's righteousness uh, would be required and fulfilled. See, he, he had to deal with us correctly. And so at the end of the day, we are guilty of breaking God's law. And so because of that, we deserve to go to this place of separation from God. And so for the for the person who hasn't trusted Christ, and this is what makes Christ's life so beautiful, is that I, I want... I want you to understand that that you may think, well, well, Pastor Barton, that just seems so unfair. That just seems so unfair. But I want you to look at it this way. God has done everything to reach us. And if we take our eyes off of Jesus, we're going to miss the whole point. If we take our eyes off the cross, we miss the whole point. The reason why Jesus came to earth was on a rescue mission. God did not leave us in our destitute place. Jesus comes to become our substitute. And maybe some of you don't understand this. It, it's more than Jesus, more than just being a good person or a good teacher or doing nice things for people. No. The, and he did those things. The whole reason Jesus came was to seek and save that which was lost. He came to give his life as a ransom for you and I. So on the cross. There's this word that the Word of God uses, the word propitiation," it, it, it can mean, sometimes it's translated atonement. What Jesus does is he becomes our covering. and on the cross, what he does is not only does he take our sins upon himself, because Jesus was perfect and because He was God, he could appease the righteous demands of God. Does that make sense? He could appease the righteous demands of God. He's the only one that could do it. I couldn't do it in my own goodness. No matter how much I try, I would fall short every single time. But because Jesus was perfect and he was God, the son of God, he could appease the righteous demands of God. So on the cross, the word propitiation not only means atonement, where he covers us and covers our sins by becoming our sacrifice, but Jesus does this. He takes on the wrath of God. The holiness of God that would be poured out on sin because of our rebellion against God was poured out on his very own Son. And Jesus took on the wrath of God when he hung on that cross two thousand years ago for you and I. I would say God is a pretty fair God. And let me just be just dead on honest with you. We are without excuse. There's going to be no one that stands before the before before God in the judgment where they're going to have an excuse. God has done everything for us through his son Jesus to reach us. It's all done by his grace. This is what I love about Christianity and the salvation message of Christianity is God pours out his grace on Bargerays who doesn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. It wasn't through my... My, my my good life, it, because that falls short. God sees all the bad things I've done. He sees all the good things I've done. He says, you know what, Barden? It's simply by my grace and mercy that you are now saved. So Jesus took that on himself on the cross, and through his resurrection, he proved who he was, that he indeed was God. And I would say for those of you that are sitting on the fence here today, I would tell you to trust Christ and his mercy and his grace. God has been more beyond fair with us. And none of us, we, the moment you get to the point in your life where you say, I don't deserve this grace, is when a whole new world opens up to you. The moment I feel entitled and I feel like I deserve something, I, I, I miss the point of the cross. I miss the point of what Jesus came to do. We fall on that mercy and grace of God to save us. So that when we stand before God one day and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? I'm not going to pull out. Well, here's all my good works, God. Did all these good things. Hopefully all my good works outweighed my bad works and you'll let me into heaven. Survey said, eh, no, that's the wrong answer. See, the answer is, why should I let you to my heaven is, I don't deserve it. I trusted your son Jesus and what he did in his work. See, I want you to understand, we're not saved by works, but we're saved to works. Works don't save me because there's not enough you could ever do. But then once we're saved and we understand this grace that God has given us, now I want to please God through my life by what I do for him. Not that it saves me, but we're saved to works. We are creating Christ Jesus to do good works, Ephesians 2.10, Paul says. So I want to ask you, where, where are you in your life today? Where are you in your decision-making today? I want you to understand that Jesus gives us everything. Maybe there's some of you here today and you're saying, Pastor, I'm really struggling with some things in my life. Maybe, maybe there's a lot of guilt and condemnation from your past. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're like, Pastor, I've got some heavy, the Holy Spirit just speaking in my heart. There's some things that I know that I'm thinking about that aren't God's will and, and, and I need to give them to the Lord. I would implore you to do that. To fight this battle the right way and give it to Christ. Do you realize God wants to use you to stand in the gap for other people? To pray for your kids? To pray for your church? To pray for one another? That's how we fight this battle. And that's how we thwart the, the schemes of the enemy, whether it's for our church or your own personal life or your family. We have to remember we're in a battle. And we have to fight it the right way. Amen. Amen. Would you bow your hearts to me for just a moment? We're gonna we're gonna end on a on a good note today and singing about Jesus being the lion and the lamb and the king of kings. And so we're just gonna rejoice in and who we have in the Savior. But I just want you to bow your hearts for me just for a moment and just could you just make this a sacred moment between you and the Lord? Could you just allow your heart to be open for just a moment and asking the Holy Spirit to speak to you in maybe some areas that maybe the Holy Spirit is speaking to you in and uh, maybe it's just staying in the gap for your family. Maybe it's it's you coming to Christ and saying, God, I've got to bow my heart to you and, and I need to do that. Whatever it may be, God hears you. He knows your heart and he wants us to come to him. And so, Father God, as we just bow our hearts before you today, Lord, you know what Every single person is going through today. You know what their struggle is. God, you know uh, what the enemy is doing in our hearts, but we thank you that you are greater, that you are more powerful, and I pray, God, that we would fight this battle the right way. I, I pray, Lord, for anyone that is just struggling, God, with something they're going through, and, they, and maybe it's past guilt and condemnation that the enemy keeps bringing up, and I thank you that in Christ Jesus we're a new creation. Lord, I just pray, God, that I I pray for our church and I, I, I pray for marriages and individual lives here today that, God, we would not allow the enemy to thwart anything that you're trying to do in our hearts. I pray that we would humble ourselves before you and admit our weaknesses to you, God, because then that power of that sin, it's no longer entangled in our hearts when we shine the light of your truth upon it. So, Lord, that doesn't mean that we have to be afraid and scared of what the enemy is going to do. We have Christ who defeated the works of the enemy. Yes, he is still the prince of this air, and yes, he's still looking to thwart your work. But but we take our cues from Jesus. who, When the enemy came to him, Jesus relied on your word. And Luke tells us that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. That's our example that being full of your Holy Spirit and relying on your word can thwart the work of the enemy. So God, just work that in our hearts today as we trust you and believe in you, Jesus. I know this was not an easy message. Lord, I can feel the resistance when we talk about it. The enemy doesn't like it. I can feel the resistance, God. But Lord, I know you're greater. And I know you want to do that work in our hearts. So help us to submit to your authority, Jesus. And to submit to your lordship. And that's where our freedom comes. So we thank you for your love and your grace that sets us free today. In your precious name we ask these things. Amen.